You're listening to the Fertility Docs Uncensored Podcast, featuring insight on all things fertility from some of the top-rated doctors around America. Whether you're struggling to conceive or just planning for your future family, we're here to guide you every step of the way. Hi, everyone. We're back with another episode of Fertility Docs Uncensored. I'm one of your hosts, Dr. Abby Eblen from Nashville Fertility Center. And today I'm joined by my co-host and friends, Dr. Susan Hudson from Texas Fertility Center. Good morning. And Dr. Carrie Bedient from the Fertility Center of Las Vegas. Hi. Hey, guys. So how have you been doing? It's been a few weeks since we've recorded episodes and we were just kind of catching up with each other a minute ago. And Susan, you mentioned that you just took a test this week. Tell us a little bit about that. I just took my accounting midterm. Yeah. <laughs> so, so even at our age, we still go to school, huh? So you're still taking tests. I Yes, I'm still taking tests. It's um, I, I'm working on my MBA and I'm just kind of Impressive. chipping away at it. Just I, I don't take classes all the time. I kind of will take a class and then I'll take a break and then I'll take a class. And they're all seven-week classes. So, you know, I'm like, I can survive anything for seven weeks. Yeah. Um, and so I, I'm taking an accounting class and it is... It is very enlightening in how I've made it this far, not <laughs> understanding some basic tenets of, of of accounting, and you know, with, with us being you know part of ovation and that type of thing, and being like, oh, this is what they're talking about, and and different yeah. things like this. That um, I, I really think that more people who are, I, I mean, I don't know. I, as somebody who previously ran my own business and didn't have this knowledge base, I'm I, I wish I would have done this years ago. But you know, hindsight's twenty twenty, and all I yeah. can do is is move forward. But it's it's very enlightening. It's like ah, oh, this is it, it's an amazing amount of knowledge, and and it, it's a lot like medicine and fertility. It's a whole bunch of acronyms. Yeah, <laughs> it's it's a whole other yeah. language. It's a language into itself. Yeah, all these specialties have their own language, and like we don't. We know that, you know, speaking medical ease is, is a whole other language and legal ease is a whole other language, but you kind of forget that everybody else has their own language too. And the accountants have, they're, they're into the acronyms, man. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. Even in science, cause I've been out of science for a while and I was just mentioning a couple of years ago, I got a master's degree in clinical and translational research. So sounds very involved, but a lot of, a lot of my medical knowledge, unlike in accounting for you, Susan, a lot of my medical knowledge was really helpful, but it's amazing how different things in the field have changed. And I took this bioinformatics class and it was so cool and so interesting to figure out, like, for example, when we talk about the COVID variants, how people figure that out, they're able to sequence the DNA. And then there's these banks of just different um, genes and you can look in and see you know, how they match up and, and you can figure out how they've evolved over time because of that. And these are like available just on the general web for general people. And it's just, it's just interesting how the field has evolved so much over time. But like you, it was, it's really difficult to do all the things that we do during the day with our regular job, go home to our families. And then after that, you've got homework <laughs> and mm-hmm. projects. Absolutely. Absolutely. But like I said, anybody can do anything for seven weeks. And I'm like, yeah. mm-hmm. I'm re-motivated to, to working on getting this completed. And it's going to take some time, but as long as it's not uh, too, it doesn't interfere too much, uh, I'm, I'm game with it. Yeah. And I think we as women kind of underestimate how capable we are to do so many different things. And I think, uh, you know, the negative impact of, this, of that is we probably wear ourselves out trying to 
take care of our job and our husbands and if we have families and and also trying to do other things, you know, at home, it's like makes you appreciate when you're 18, you could just go to college and just focus on school. And that was it. <laughs> you know, I, I love TED Talks. And one of my favorite TED Talks of all time was essentially this woman talking about how in your life, you can make time for whatever you think is important. Okay. And it's, it's an amazing Ted talk. And they, they essentially took this woman who's this high powered executive and, and, you know, said, you know, I need you to carve 10 or 15 hours out of your week. And it was like, absolutely not. There's no way. Well, if you add like an emergency, like a pipe blows in your house and a wall has to come <laughs> down, how amazingly you can with whatever priorities, you know? And so it, it's funny because ever since I listened to that, I, I really hate it when people are like, I don't have time for something. And I'm like, exercise. It's, <laughs> I mean, it, exactly, exactly. It's not that you don't have time. I don't want to give my time for that. Yes. <laughs> that is, that is so much more true. And it's true, you know, and, and whatever you want to make your priority. I mean, I think about my days when I was in college and how I felt like I was so busy and I had so little to get done. <laughs> I know. What are your thoughts, Carrie? Uh, agree, agree with all of the above. I I have just started to really recommit to exercising and taking better care of myself, which takes a crap ton of time, which is part of the reason why I hadn't done it before. And but it's really amazing, you know. I set the alarm for a little bit earlier every morning, uh. get up, go, and and you just do it. And and I am. Um, both grateful and envious and grateful that I am not in any extra classes right now, but envious because I kind of want to be, <laughs> I just haven't figured out how to do it. Cause I'm, I'm a course director for the med school plus one residency in town, plus another residency in town. Like there's only, there's only so many hours in a day. And so it's trying to balance the, what you want to do, what you have to do, what you should be doing and figuring out, okay, where's the sweet spot of how does how do all the important factors and what's going to be a priority at any given time? There was a, some, I think it was a tweet that went around. Um, I'm not on Twitter, so I don't know, but it's this woman who is talking about juggling glass balls and, and some balls are glass and some balls are plastic. And you have to know at any given time, which ones you can drop and they're plastic, so they're going to bounce versus which ones are going to shatter. Mm-hmm. And so it's not just like a general ball of work and a general ball of spouse and a general ball of kids and family and health and all that. It's like specific balls of your kid's recital, you know, your your marriage anniversary, you know, this very specific work project. And, and so um, she talks about knowing what you can draw and what Mm -hmm. and let go and it's going to be okay when it bounces yeah so I try and remember remember that so that I I get it all right that's a good visual that's a very good visual that is that's a great visual yeah well on that note since that's such a great analogy we're going to move on to the question of the day so Carrie do you have the question of the day for us I do and here we go so Patient said, I recently switched from my OBGYN to an RE. My OBGYN diagnosed me with endometriosis, removed a septum, and scheduled an HSG, which was normal. Okay. The RE has done an ultrasound and two postcoital tests, both with low sperm counts. He scheduled us for IUI this month, and I'm concerned he hasn't done enough testing. He explained the benefits of the postcoital test and gave me a printout 
but is this really enough to move to IUI and is there additional testing I should request? So, so there's a lot going on in that. <laughs> a lot of questions can in we, there. Can we break that down? <laughs> so, okay. So she already has a diagnosis of endometriosis. She's had a uterine septum. So that a uterine issue. And she has her tubes that are open. So that information that her OBGYN gave her is quite a lot right there. Endo has huge impacts in, in fertility. Knowing the tubes are open is really important. Knowing the septum is gone, really important. Okay. So she mentions an ultrasound done and postcoital tests. And she she doesn't mention any other testing, although elsewhere in the question she did reference that there was an ultrasound done and that the RE said your egg reserve is normal. So really she wants to know should she do additional testing? And and I'm curious from both of you, when was the last time you ordered a postcoital test? I can say I have never ordered a postcoital test in my entire career. I ordered it early on more than 20 years ago, um, right after my fellowship. And then sort of, I think as a general rule, most people kind of felt like it really was not that helpful because the funny thing was a lot of times back then you'd start talking to patients about how their postcoital test was abnormal. And in the same month, they'd be pregnant. <laughs> so it was pretty clear, even without a lot of randomized testing, that that probably was not the best determinant of how likely the sperm was to penetrate cervical mucus and get to the egg. So pretty much about 20 years ago, most people stopped doing it as a standard test. Abby, I, I have never ordered one either. Can you tell us how you instruct <laughs> do that. Okay. You guys are making me feel really, really old right now. (laughs) So basically near as I remember, you would have somebody do an ovulation predictor kit because, you know, right around the time of your period, I mean, right around the time of ovulation, your cervical mucus gets thin and stretchy, you know, that's sometimes you can sort of, that's a natural way of kind of checking the egg light. Yeah. And so at that time you would have sex and I think you'd have to come in within I don't know, I can't remember the time frame, maybe within a few hours, a couple of hours or so. And basically you'd bring the patient back. You would basically take a sampling of that mucus in the cervix. So you could use like an angiocatheter, a little catheter and suck up some of that mucus and then put it on a slide. And then you would count and see how many sperm you saw. And based on that number, you would decide if the sperm could actually swim through the mucus or not. So, so did you want a lot or not a lot? You wanted a lot because if you got it from the mucus, it told you that the sperm was getting up in the mucus and getting through it. I mean, you couldn't actually go in the uterine cavity and know how many sperm were there. But if they're getting up in the cervical mucus, you're thinking, okay, they're able to get through that. So that was the test. Wasn't a very good test. <laughs> As a field, reproductive endocrinologist asks, we ask a lot of our patients, and I, infertility ruins a lot of sex lives. I feel like that test really puts a lot of pressure. Yeah. It's like, know that, do the OPK, know that you're ready, have sex, and then be in the office within an hour. Or Yes, hour. absolutely. That was, that was always the challenge. I cannot imagine thinking that having a promise of a pelvic exam within an hour of having sex. <laughs> it doesn't make for like a very intimate atmosphere. No, it really doesn't. No. Okay, so is there additional testing that this patient should have? So we know her tubes are good. We know that uterus has been evaluated. We know that there's a, a note of low sperm counts. Um, I would be interested to see if just a garden variety semen analysis has been done. Right, at least a semen analysis. Yeah. Yeah. I also think, you know, ultrasound is going to give you an idea of antral follicle count, but I'm 
I personally like to get some oh, yeah, AMH. chemistries, you know, get an AMH, get an FSH and estradiol, you know, really have more evaluation, you know, on how the ovaries are working, especially with that history of endometriosis. Um, I, I like to have a better idea of what's going on there. So I think there are some missing things. Um, not that IUI is going to be a wrong decision with what we know, but it, it may not actually be enough treatment based on what we know and what we don't know. So one thing I would say too, is I think it continually amazes patients at how few tests we really have. And over time, postcoital tests included a lot of tests that we used to do, sperm penetration assay, postcoital tests have kind of fallen by the wayside. Mm -hmm. It seems like we're having, we have less tests rather than more. Um, and, you know, if you think back, even if you took one anatomy class in your whole life, if you think back to the things even you intuitively know that have to happen for an egg and a sperm to get together, you know, they have to have receptors, receptors have to bind together, they have to, you know, within 24 hours, the DNA in the cell has to decompress and then do its little dance and then start dividing. I mean, all those things have regulatory steps, I'm sure, that control those. We just don't have tests for any of that stuff. So there's so many things we don't have tests for. But unfortunately, you know, it's just there's those tests don't exist at this point. So we do very little testing. I would agree with the patient compared to what could be done. But unfortunately, we are the state of the art is not there yet. All right. So what are we talking about today, Abby? So we are talking about what are, or at least our title is, what are some advantages of genetic testing? Um, and by that, we're talking both on partners and also on embryos. Um, so Carrie, why don't you start out and kind of talk a little bit about genetic testing? What, why would we do it and who do we do it on and when do we do it? Sure. So genetic testing, um, that's a really a broad term. And it's important to know when we're referring to genetic testing, what that is in reference to. So the basic biology behind it is that every human being has 46 chromosomes in every single cell. And kind of in a perfect world, they are all the same chromosomes. Now, there are some conditions where there's some variation there and difference in expression. We're not going to get into those variations today. So in general, every cell and every human and every body has 46 chromosomes. And when you're talking about reproduction, those chromosomes separate out and half are coming from the egg and the other half are coming from the sperm. And so a chromosome and a gene are two closely related but different things. So a chromosome is a huge collection of genes. So on one chromosome, you're going to have hundreds to thousands of genes. A gene is something that is a, it's a building block. And sometimes single genes can be very, very powerful. And if one little thing is off with them, you then upset the whole apple cart. Um, kind of like a computer program. Kind of like a computer program. I was thinking even more simplistic because I don't, my brain does not work on computer program levels. My brain works on, I'm thinking about a cinder block wall. The chromosome is the compilation of all the cinder blocks put together, one sturdy wall, whereas a gene would be one individual brick within there. Okay. And I just for the heck of it, I'll throw my analogy is a gene is a book. I mean, a, a chromosome is a book and a gene is a paragraph in the book. It's just one small part of the book, but all the same, all the same thing. Mm -hmm. <laughs> if it's the paragraph in the book where they're revealing the murderer, that paragraph gets cut out. Big problems happen because you got to know who the murderer in the story was. That's but right. It's a paragraph that's just describing the trees outside the house that, you know, six houses down from 
the murder where where the murder happened you can tell what kind of stories i like um, <laughs> you know that's less relevant if something gets damaged in it and so when we're talking about genetic testing we're talking about all the ways that we can look at chromosomes or at genes and how that impacts the health of the couple going through how that impacts our ability to do treatment and how that impacts the ultimate outcome of a healthy live human being so Carrie, if we're going to test somebody to see if they carry some abnormal gene, do we just test the embryo for all those or how do we do that? Who do we who do we start testing first when we're looking for genes? So I had a patient who, who was just asking this question recently, actually, and she was like, I don't really want to get the testing done. Why don't we just test the embryo alone? And, and this was in reference to all those specific little genes. And so we had a good conversation about how testing all of these little genes takes a, a decent amount of genetic material. And so it is better to test the providers of egg and sperm, mom and dad, um, or donors, however it's coming together, and test them because they are full-grown adults. They've got plenty to spare. You take one little, you know, 5, 10 cc tube of blood and you can get a ton of information because 5 to 10 cc's of blood... Or saliva. Or saliva, cheek swab, um, that holds a ton of material to work with. And, and so as a result, when we're looking at specific genes, because we tend to be doing a real scattershot approach to it, we want to test parents. And that is different than testing an embryo because an embryo is a compilation of usually about one to 300 cells, more or less, um, in total. And so we take out four to five of those cells when we're looking at an embryo. And that is a vastly different, smaller number than what we can get from an adult who's going through. So when we're looking at genes, we're testing the parents, not the embryo itself. Okay. Yeah, that's what I was just going to say. To summarize, that's that's what we're doing. We're testing parents first. And, and so, Susan, sometimes when I talk to couples and the tests that we do, the general term is called an expanded care screening test. It just, like you said, it's like a shotgun approach. We test everybody regardless of race or ethnicity, for all these crazy genes they could carry. And, you know, we find out from Ancestry.com, we don't really know our family history, probably more than two or three generations back. So it's really hard for even an individual person to go, oh, okay, you need to test me for this or this. But Susan, speak to the point that patients make sometimes when I talk to them about this test, they're like, oh, well, nobody in my family has it. They're, everybody's healthy that I know of. So what do you tell them when they say that? <laughs> so the way I describe these tests are the entire purpose of these tests are to find things that are hiding in the family tree until the right person meets the right person. And so just because you don't have a history, besides the fact that most of us beyond our grandparents, we really don't know what were their medical ailments and, and things like that. And even among that, you know, if you had somebody who, when we're talking about grandparents or great grandparents, we had lots of, you know, childhood deaths. We had lots of infant deaths for lots of different reasons. Mm -hmm. And most of the genes that we're testing for are for big, bad, and uglies. Okay. They're not for mild diseases. They're diseases that are potentially going to have a significant life-altering event happen to this child. Death at an early age, for example, or stillborn. Exactly, exactly. And so just because you don't have a family history of these things, that's why we need to check. And, and you know, there's, there's so much unknown in your family history. Was 
you know, somebody actually not the parent of so-and-so, you, you know, th- these things happen. I mean, Carrie has a great statistic. What is it? 15%? 15% non-paternity. That means 15% of people are walking around and no man is daddy and they don't know. Wow. I didn't, I didn't know that statistic. That's high. Women take care of their own fertility for a long time. Like male factor infertility, women will take care of that. <laughs> Interesting. So, I mean, it's one of those things that it's important for us to understand that just because there's not a family history, that doesn't mean that it's it's not important. Um, and sometimes, you know, we even have people who say, well, because they think we're doing testing, that means we have to medically act on that. And, and that's not necessarily the case. First of all, I think there is power in knowledge, okay? Um, and when we do this testing, the first thing that comes up is, if both parents are a carrier for the same condition and they potentially might want to prevent that condition, that they could potentially use IVF or in vitro fertilization and we can test embryos and then transfer embryos that we know should not be affected by that particular gene. Okay. But for those people who might say that's not the way we want to roll the dice, we would rather just, you know, try on our own or we don't want to do testing or things like this. I think it's where you gain your power is that, you know, if I know I'm carrying a child that has a 25% chance of having this major illness, um, I may, might make a different decision on which hospital to deliver. Who's going to be my pediatrician? What other types of doctors might my child need? Um, if Childcare, uh, to me, I mean, childcare is one one of the biggest things. Is you know, if I have this, if I have a twenty five percent chance of having a child with some very special and specific needs, I might need to choose this type of childcare over another type of childcare, or you know, support systems. There, there's so many other things that are real life that that can play into having that information. And one other thing too, I think that is pointed out a lot of times is that. You know, when you have a child that has a problem, you know, the child is born and maybe the first few months, you don't know that something bad is happening. And then all of a sudden the child starts, stops meeting its benchmarks. And then all of a sudden there's really maybe nothing specific and you can't figure out what's going on. On average, it takes people about six years and they call it a medical odyssey where they go to a lot of subspecialists to try and figure out what's going on with their child before they can even start to get help. And so to your point, Susan, you know, if you can find out early on, even if you choose not to do genetic testing and just roll the dice and see what happens, the other benefit is, you know, early on, like you said, and, and not only can you pick your providers and who are going to take care of your children, but you can also hopefully get treatment early that may have an impact on the overall health of the child. And a lot of these diseases we're testing are metabolic disorders. What does metabolic mean? Metabolic disorders are are disorders where your body's not processing something correctly. And if you know ahead of time that your child's not going to process something correctly, there might be very safe interventions that you can do that might help prevent harm to your child. Whereas if, if you just kind of kept on living normal life, exposing your child to these, you know, whatever that substance may be, that we might actually cause damage that you could have prevented if you had that knowledge ahead of time. So Carrie, what do you say to couples who say, well, okay, I'm going to do IVF and, and I'm going to do some genetic testing. Um, what are we, what are we usually talking about when we talk about genetic testing in regards to IVF and how does that 
relate to what Susan just talked about with genetic testing with genes? So this is where we start getting into a little bit of alphabet soup. <laughs> the the current official name of the testing we do is called PGT-A. PGTA. Um, in the past, it has been known as PGS, uh, PGD. Um, CCS, Comprehensive Chromosome Screening. Yes. I feel like there's one more that I'm missing in there, but those are the... Fish was thrown in there at some point too, but... Yeah, there's fish. Um, but PGTA is the current correct term that refers to the majority of testing that we're doing. And what that stands for is pre-implantation, i.e. before we actually get you knocked up, genetic <laughs> testing. And the A refers to aneuploidy. And what aneuploidy is, the ploidy of a cell is referring to whether they have the correct number of chromosomes present. So euploid means there's the correct number. Aneuploid means that there's the incorrect number. And the human body is really good about saying, do not pass go, do not collect $200 when you have an aneuploid embryo. Sometimes that's a really early process where it just, the embryo doesn't grow. Sometimes it doesn't implant. Sometimes it's an early miscarriage. Sometimes it's a late miscarriage. And sometimes it's an affected child. But um, what we're typically trying to do is avoid many of those issues in our patients. Because what's really important to know is that going through an embryo transfer is not uh, a totally benign event. And what I mean by that is that there's money that's being spent. There's Emotional energy. <laughs> there's emotional energy. There's physical energy. There's lots of hopes and dreams. Um, going through a miscarriage, while the physical part of it tends to be just fine, the emotional part of it is brutal. And so what we are looking to do is avoid some of the health consequences, avoid some of the emotional consequences of transferring an embryo that is not destined to make it. So Carrie, how often do we see aneuploid or genetically abnormal embryos? Is that a very common thing? extraordinarily common as in an everyday kind of event thing. Um, and, and in many respects in an every patient kind of event thing, um, we just to reference back to some of the, the episodes where we talked with Amy Jones, who's a, just a phenomenal scientist. Um, when she was giving us some of the data is all right, what percentage of embryos that we get are we likely to see abnormal? Um, it's all dependent on age where, Younger tends to have higher percentages of normal and, and patients who have more years, you know, typically greater than 36, 37 years, have a higher percentage of abnormal embryos. But under the best of circumstances, we're talking about a 50-50 split. 50-50, yeah. That, that most successful patient, youngest patient. Yeah. Well, and it's not necessarily actually that youngest patient. So remember, you actually have that little bit higher percentage when you're in your young 20s as compared to when you're in your mid to late 20s. So there's that little spike too. It's true. But it's common is the point. At least half of yes. your embryos are probably going to be genetically abnormal if you're an average person mm -hmm. going through IVF. And, and most people don't realize that when you're trying to conceive just on your own making a baby in the bedroom, that there is a huge percentage, upwards of 50%, where you just never realize you're pregnant because everything has started to happen. And then the body has said, oops, not normal, game over. And, and you get a period, maybe it's a day or two late, but you don't ever really notice that because, because it's just within the realm of normal. 
And there's no way for us to test for it unless you're doing really fancy mouse studies and, and that are hard to, to come by. So Susan, can you talk about how the gene, like say somebody tests positive for something like cystic fibrosis, how does that work when they're doing IVF? Can you can you also test for the right number of chromosomes and also test for that gene? How does that work? So very good question. So as Carrie mentioned, the PGTA, A for aneuploidy, abnormal number of chromosomes, tests for the chromosomal abnormalities. There's also a segment of testing called PGTM, okay? And the M part is where we're testing for these specific mutations, okay? That's what M is for. And we're looking for those abnormal genes that we know are present in both parents or both sources of egg and sperm. Now, an important difference to know about PGTM is this is not an off-the-shelf test. And what I mean by that is say, I'm going to get ready for IVF. I'm like, woohoo, we want to do PGTA. That is not going to take any additional time or testing or anything that's going to kind of change the scope of what I was generally going to plan. Okay. PGTM is very specific to the individual sources of egg and sperm. Okay. And so what happens is if you say, you know, me and my partner, we're both carriers for cystic fibrosis. We want to test our embryos to see if they would be affected or be carriers or not have any genetic, you know, link to cystic fibrosis. You have to one, be accepted into a program because not all programs are going to accept all disease states. Okay. Number one, number two, they have to form a probe, create this little kind of device that's going to look at your embryo specific, that's going to be based on you, each of your specific um, abnormalities. Abnormalities. Exactly. Exactly. And so it generally takes about four to six weeks for that type of probe to be created. Okay. Sometimes even maybe a little bit longer. And another thing to add is um, because they're making this so specifically, they may ask for blood or saliva samples from other first degree relatives of yours. Okay. And this sometimes kind of hits people like a brick wall when we start talking about it, because they may not have shared their fertility journey with their family members. And then we're sitting there going, Hey, can we get blood from your mom, your dad, your sibling, you know, that type of thing. And so that's something to kind of not be surprised about because that by having those multiple sources of blood, they're able to get the best probe created. Now, Generally, when it comes to the actual testing, there's still, um, at the time of PGTA or PGTM, we're looking at embryos that are expanded blastocysts. These are advanced stage embryos where we can, we can tell what part's going to become the baby and what part's going to be become the placenta. We sample a few of the cells that are going to become the placenta, cryopreserve these embryos, and then send those cells off to the lab to have them tested for either the chromosome and or gene abnormality. Uh, generally what happens is they test the chromosomes first and the embryos that are chromosomally normal are then tested for the gene abnormality. Now, when you have those gene abnormality tests, you can find out if they have two abnormal copies, one abnormal copy or no abnormal copies. Um, and generally speaking, the ones with no or one abnormal copy are ones that you would 
preferentially transfer because you shouldn't have that specific disease state under most circumstances. One other thing I wanted to interject when you were talking about, you know, having to bring family members in to figure this out, you know, some people, and even I, before I knew a whole lot about genetics, and I've learned more in the last five years about genetics than I've probably known in my whole career, but a gene, for example, like cystic fibrosis, my understanding is if you think of the analogy of a book, um, you know, a gene for cystic fibrosis could be like a deletion of a whole chapter. It could be deletion of like a couple of pages in the book. It could be deletion of just a small, tiny word um, in a paragraph. And so deletions, additions of pieces of information or point mutations could all result, you know, have the same end result. And so, you know, I, I've had a couple of patients that have had 23andMe done, and they're like, oh, well, I tested negative for cystic fibrosis. Well, that may be the case, but it may be that it wasn't a very um, comprehensive. Yeah, it may have tested for one, because there's a mutation called Delta F508, which is the most common cystic fibrosis mutation. But many, 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 many people who still have cystic fibrosis don't have that specific mutation. So that's why sometimes we have to bring family members in to really make sure that the probe that we're developing is really one that's correct for you and for your partner, basically. So when you guys get um, someone who is considering doing PGTA on their embryos, what? how do you counsel them? Like when they say, okay, is this going to make my IVF more effective? What do you tell them about, about what the test tells us? Does it make it more effective? Do you tell them other, other things? How do you phrase that? What do you tell patients? So one thing that I talk to patients about is that it helps us get to that normal embryo, which ideally is going to help you get to your pregnancy faster. Okay. So if you have 10 embryos and I know sitting here, I'm playing Russian roulette with five of them. Okay. That if I can sit there and transfer a single embryo and give you 60 to 70% chance of taking home a baby, that is potentially going to save you money and time in the long term. To me, that's that's a major advantage to the PGT testing. And I think it's also advantageous. There's a lot of different groups it's advantageous for. I think um, it was sort of initially targeted at women that were older. And it's still in that group, it's really helpful because I think in the last few years, all of us can say we've had several patients beyond the age of 40 that have had a great outcome in a successful pregnancy because they may have only had one or two good or, or, you know, just a few embryos, but we were lucky enough to find one that was genetically normal amongst all those other ones or those few other ones. And if you transfer that embryo, and we see this time and time again in our statistics, if you can find an embryo that's genetically normal, regardless of the patient's age, overwhelmingly, those patients have on the order of 65 to 70% pregnancy rate. Now, I will say in a lot of our older patients, the, the biggest disadvantage or the, the thing that's the most difficult or the biggest challenge for them is a lot of times we can't stimulate them well enough to sometimes even to make it where we can get an egg and go to egg retrieval. But if we can find some eggs at the time of egg retrieval, if we were able to have good fertilization and the embryos are able to grow to that fifth day, again, if we can test an embryo and find a normal one, they have a great chance of pregnancy. And I think it's important. I think we've kind of, or at least a lot of us have made a transition that my goal is to get you a pregnancy, not get you a transfer. Correct. Yeah. And, and transferring an embryo that isn't going to result in pregnancy, that's hard. I mean, fertility treatment is hard work. I mean, it is 
not only financially exhausting, but it's, it's emotionally and physically exhausting. And having to go through that process, you know, more than once, I had a patient once who was in her mid forties and she had kind of polycystic ovaries. We did two egg retrievals each time she ended up with almost, and this is way above what you would normally expect. That's what I was just going to say. We don't normally see that. (laughs) This is not what we normally see. And she ended up having like somewhere on the order of like 10 to 15 embryos each time to be able to test, which is unusual for even young people. And every single one of those embryos was chromosomally abnormal both times. And if you think about it, that it look at all of those transfers that she could have gone through. And even when you're talking about things like if somebody would like to reduce their risk of having a baby with Down syndrome or trisomy 21, um, yes, we know the risks are higher in somebody who's 35 and above, but actually more Down syndrome babies are born to people who are less than 35 because they're more likely to get pregnant. So Mm -hmm. just because you're young does not mean you don't have a risk uh, of that happening. And and Mm -hmm. to some people that that is important to some people, it's not, it's okay. You know, each person and couple is an individual, but these are all things to kind of play into the decision-making process. All right. Well, I think that is a very good discussion. Any last words that either of you would like to make? Carrie, any last words? I think a lot of it is just talk to your, talk to your RE, ask a ton of questions. It, it, this is not information that we pick up overnight. We, it's been evolving really rapidly in the past several years, but make sure you understand the benefits of the testing that you're getting. Because for some people, it's a great idea. And for some people, they're like, eh. I don't care about the information. I don't want to like, there's, there's cons to both of it. So just ask lots of questions. So you understand what PGTA can tell you and other genetic testing can tell you and what it cannot tell you because nothing, nothing is perfect. Nothing can tell you everything. So really uh, try to understand what it is you can say, what it is you cannot say based on these results. All right. Well, thanks for listening and tune in next week for more. Be sure to subscribe and leave us a review in iTunes. We'd really love to hear from you. You can also visit FertilityDocsUncensored.com to schedule an appointment with any of us or submit specific questions you have about infertility. All questions will be answered on the podcast anonymously for our Ask the Doc segment. So don't hold back. We love to answer your questions. Have a wonderful day and a wonderful week and we will talk to you soon. Bye everyone. Bye. Bye.